Morning, everyone. It's good to be together outside. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. We're going to do a study out of uh, Matthew 9. We're going to look at five verses, and, uh, and then we'll refer to two others and then take communion at the end. But it's so great to have you here if you're visiting. Uh, we love uh, the fact that we can worship God anywhere. It's not just a building. Normally, we meet at the Maricosta High School uh, every week, but they have a play going on, so we're stuck out here in this beautiful uh, uh, place to worship God, but it's still amazing that we can worship God anywhere. Let's go ahead, if you would. We're going to start out with a prayer. And then I will get right into the lesson. Our Father in heaven, thank you so very much for all that you do in our lives. Thank you for this beautiful, sunny, temperate day. I know that I was just raining uh, 24 plus hours ago. And uh, thank you that we could be out here uh, praying, listening, singing, being together. What a privilege, what a gift. Father, help us remember that Uh, Every heartbeat that we have, every step that we take, every hug we give to our spouse or child or friend, every day we get to go to work, every day we get to see our kids, it's all a gift from you. It's all numbered. It's all precious. And it's all special. And I pray that, God, with the gifts that you give us during this short time on earth, that we could bring you glory, that people would look at our lives and they would see something different, not be impressed with us but that they would want to know you and that they would be impressed with you because we would shine through, God. You would shine through in us. And I pray that we could bring you much glory. Help us as we start this new series on follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You know, as Brian said, uh, our new series is called Follow. It'll go on for the next five plus weeks. And, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, when you're little, your parents are very concerned with who you hang out with. In fact, often you're not allowed to have sleepovers when you're little, right? And uh, you want to know who little Johnny's friends are, and you want to meet their parents, and you want to know where they're playing, and you want to, if they're playing at a park, you want to keep them in eyesight. Uh, you really care about uh, where, who they're following, who they're hanging out with, because who we follow really makes a huge difference about what we do and what we don't do, and what we take on. We also... Uh, as they get older, as our kids get older, if you're a good parent, you still care about who your kids are hanging with. And you still want to know as much as you can without hovering about who are they following, uh, who are they hanging out with, where are they going, what are they doing? Why? Because you know who you follow makes such a difference to who you are. In fact, the Bible even says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, a scripture that the parents teach their kids. It says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And often children or young adults are naive and they say, I can hang out with so-and-so. It won't affect me. I've got good character. They may not, but I'm okay. And uh, the Bible says, uh, come back to your senses. Do not be misled. Uh, Stop sinning. It says in that same verse, some of you are ignorant to God, and I say this to your shame. I mean, so it's very easy for us to be deceived to think that who we hang around, who we follow, will not affect us. Whether we're very little and we need a lot of supervision, whether we're an adolescent and we need less supervision, or whether we're an adult, who we follow affects who we are. And, uh, you know, we've all played the game, Simon says, 
And the title of today's lesson is Jesus Says. And I think so often we can look at Jesus and see him as a bunch of do's and don'ts. Jesus says to pray, so I need to pray. Jesus says to not sin, so I need to not sin. Jesus said to be nice to people, so I need to be nice to people. Jesus says, help the poor, I need to help the poor. And I can just keep going, and some of you may go, isn't that right? Well, yeah, there's truth in that Jesus tells us how to live. But it's so much more than just do's and don'ts. It's so much more than just a list of rules or a list of good living. It's all about relationships. It's not about just being a good person. In the book, or in the game, Simon says, if you stop, you know, the game is to trick people. You go faster and faster and faster. You're out. Faster and faster. You're out. And sometimes I think in Christianity, we can feel that. As we mess up, we can feel either I'm following the whole list or I'm out. But I'll keep coming because I don't want to be totally out. And yet that's not the realm that God operates. And, you know, I think about this, this saying. There's a, a cemetery in England uh, that a long time ago, someone put this on their tombstone in order to remind people of mortality. And it said this, pause, my friend. I'm not going to do it with an English accent, but that's how it was written. Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Someone had put on their tombstone. And loving the British humor, somebody took a note, a sign, and put on there, a visitor, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. And I think that is so true. It's not about just following. And yes, we're all going to follow the next guy to death. We're all going to have, no one gets out of the grave. No one gets a, a pass for mortality. Everybody follows the exact same path. But where we, what we do in this life and where we end up in the other life really all comes down to who we're following now. And I'm so thankful that the person we're called to follow, Jesus, though he was deeper than the ocean in his teaching, in his makeup as a person, his command was very simple. Follow. He said it over and over and over again. That it wasn't just a list. He told Philip, follow me. He told Peter, when Peter was struggling with John living longer than him, he says, what about him? He said, don't worry about him. Follow me. There at the end, when Peter didn't know what was going to happen. He said it to Andrew, follow me, one of the apostles. He said it to the crowds over and over again, follow. And I think whether you're not in the faith, whether you're just here checking it out, whether you used to be in the faith, whether you're strong in the faith, whether you're a true Christian or not, the simple command from Jesus, the simple invitation from Jesus, the simple instruction is all the same. Jesus says, follow. We don't have to do it perfectly. We'll not ever do it perfectly, but he calls us to follow. And when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you don't just see a list of rules. You see that the Gospels, which means good news, is about relationships. You see a few analogies that Jesus uses. He uses the analogy of the Father and the Son through his own relationship with God. 
all throughout the Gospels, he uses this analogy. As he talks to God and you see his interaction with God, you see this human connection that isn't just do's and don'ts. It's a relationship, father and son. I only say what God wants, he says. I always do what pleases him. I only am telling you what the father told me to say. You see this father-son relationship. And that's what following is about. It's about a relationship. You see this idea, this analogy in the Gospels of the vine and the branches. That just like if you cut off branches off a vine, they'll look green for a couple hours. Then they go to gray-green. Then they go to yellow-green. Then they go to brown. And then they just are dead. Once they're cut from the vine, the life source is no longer. There's a relationship there. They need it, the branches need the vine for the source of life. And you see this example in the Bible, that following Jesus is being connected not just to the do's and don'ts, but to who he is, what he says. It's a relationship. And another analogy he uses is that of a sheep and shepherd. We don't relate with that because we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. But a good shepherd would literally know his sheep, which one limped, which one was slow, which one would wander off. In fact, shepherds that were really good, the sheep would learn to distinguish a shepherd's voice. So if all the sheep from different uh, flocks of shepherds all mixed together, you'd come up as a shepherd and you'd make your little sheep noises or whatever you use, your whistles or your you know, different noises to call them, and they would recognize your voice over another shepherd's voice, and they'd, they'd all be mixed together, but your sheep would come out of the crowd. And you see that analogy in the Bible when you hear about following, about the sheep and the shepherd, that there's, as Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. There's a connection. Turn with me over to Matthew 9, if you haven't yet, and let's look at this short five-verse act, this play. Four characters in this story that Jesus interacts with and calls to follow. You see Matthew, who was a tax collector, but also a Jew. You see other tax collectors, unnamed tax collectors, and quote-unquote, the Bible says, sinners. You see them there in the story. You see the Pharisees, which were very religious people, that did everything the Bible said, plus added 610 other laws to circle the other laws, just in case they missed one, then they didn't break the originals. And they were all about do's and don'ts. And then you also see his disciples following along. It says in Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Let me give you a little context here. What happened was when Rome would conquer a province... They would then auction off to their own people, to the highest bidder, who wants to tax this province? So their wealthy friends that help get them in power, and their wealthy friends that help keep them in power, and their wealthy friends that give them money would bid amongst each other, and they would get the right to tax torrents, let's say, as long as Rome got their cut. So it's like a franchise. So Roman so citizen so-and-so gets the area of Torrance, taxes them at this rate, gives Rome their peace. Rome doesn't have to deal with the administration or management of it, and life goes on. Well, the tax collector was the guy that the Roman citizen that bid for that region, they'd go hire locals, people that knew who was hiding out with their taxes, people that knew where to go, people that knew the system, 
people that knew what should be taxed, and they gave them a very high salary and said, go at it. How would you like to work for me? Just give me my piece so I can pay Rome, and I can get my piece. So you can just see the money adding on. And that's who Matthew was. Matthew was a man that understood the Jewish customs because he was Jewish, but he separated out and decided to follow this way because it was lucrative for him, highly lucrative. So he was, to say he was looked down on was an understatement. In fact, he was separated from the sinners. They said, there's the sinners, and then there's the tax collectors in a category of his own. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was still having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, it's a really interesting story, these five verses, about following Jesus. How it's not just about rules and regulations, but it's about a relationship. Let's look at Matthew here for a second. Matthew was a traitor. Matthew was far from God. Matthew knew the right things. He was taught the Old Testament. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. And yet something happened in Matthew's heart and life that made him drift. And I don't know where you're at today, but maybe you know what's right from your upbringing or a religious season of your life, but, but you've kind of turned your back on God. You're far from God right now. And I want to tell you that there's a lot of hope for you. That Jesus says to you, follow. No matter where you're at, what you've done, I mean, he, he came to Matthew in the booth. Matthew was at the booth. He was right in the middle of collecting taxes. And Jesus still saw good in him and saw hope for him. And he told him, follow. And wherever you're at, even though you may intellectually know the truth and you're not following it, God's saying to you, follow. That there's hope for you. That you can change. That he sees good in you. No matter what you've done, or even currently what you're doing. Matthew was in the mix, and Jesus still saw good in him and called him to follow. What did Matthew do? It says Matthew got up and followed him. You know, I don't know what Matthew was thinking at that moment, but it surely must have been some insecurity and fear. What are my other tax collectors going to think? What are the people that are supposed to be accepting me going to think? I'm stuck between two worlds. What's my wife going to think when our income drops by 98% or whatever it is? What am I going to do for a job? What's going to happen in my life? Where is this guy going to lead me? How do I know this is going to turn out well? I mean, you could just on and on, comma, 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 about what could have happened and what he could have been thinking. But he took a simple step, an act of faith, and put his trust in Jesus, and he followed and no matter where you're at, you can get up from your situation and you can start there. I don't think Matthew's faith was great when he started. I think it grew because he didn't have much to go on. But he was tired of where he was at 
And he was tired of just living for material possessions. And he was tired of being tormented and accused on the inside. And he says, this can be my shot to be free. He had already tried the money thing and had a lot of it. And there was still something unhealthy inside of him that made him go, I want to get better. And I think that is in all of us that we want to get better. What does he do with Matthew? It says he went to his house. See, there's a difference between how you live at work and out in public than how you live in your house. You say, well, Marco, there shouldn't be a difference. Yes, you're right. There shouldn't be a difference. But you're more comfortable in your own home, and you're typically more impatient in your own home than you are at your job. Am I the only one? Can, can I get a few other sinners that are in the crowd? Okay, so a few, few of the section. Uh, sometimes more of who you are comes out in every way in your own home. Am I right? You're more comfortable in your own home. And I know I've asked people, you know, before, hey, come on over. No, no, we can meet somewhere else. Why? Because there's something intimate and vulnerable about being in someone's home on both ways. And what does Jesus say? He says, I want to take this faith thing. I want to follow you to your house. I want to see how you live. I want to see who you live around, I want to see who your friends are, and I want to still call you to follow. Matthew could have said right then and there, um, can we just go take it out to underneath a tree out in the meadow? Do, really, I mean, do we really have to come home? Think about what Matthew's kids could have thought. Oh, you're the holy man now, Dad? Think about what his wife could have thought. Think about what his friends would have thought. But something in Matthew said, I don't care I'm not well. I want to get well. And he took Jesus to his own home. If you really want your faith to be something that's real and your followership of Jesus to be something that's not just a Sunday thing or a when I feel like it thing, it has to come home. It has to be who you are in your own home, who you are when you're out of the public eye, who you are when you're interacting with the most intimate people in your life, who you are where you're the most comfortable. And that's where following really counts the most. I have to apologize the most at home. Why? I spend the most time there and I have the most opportunity to sin there. And I think it's the same for all of us, and yet that's where God calls us to follow, where it hits home the most. See, we can't have our personal life in our religious life. I remember I was a college student at the University of Arizona, and I was going to a religious group uh, to, um, you know, on like Wednesdays for Bible study, and I was going to, you know, different events they had, and then I was going to another church, so I had my church friends, I had my religious group on campus friends, because they didn't go to the same church, and then I had my cool friends. And I remember one day they said, who wants to work in the booth? You know the booth on campus for those that went to college where there's the religious guys handing out things, little Frisbees and water bottles and little religious. And I'm like, oh, I can't. I'm like so busy. Because the last thing I wanted to do was to let my cool friends see me in the booth. In fact, one time I was talking to my campus ministry friends. I wasn't a disciple yet. And some of my cool friends came up and I quickly just ducked out, you know, so they wouldn't meet each other. Why? I was trying to keep my faith separate. I was trying to follow Jesus in my own way, and it doesn't work that way. We've got to be able to take it to who we are and how we are 
in every situation. You know, I love the fact that Jesus was comfortable with people that weren't religious. You know, if all your friends are only people in the church, you're a little bit in trouble. You say, why? Because that's not who all Jesus' friends were. He had a lot of friends. And some of us are really good at that. And some of us, we just, let's keep it, let's just stay in the commune. Let's just stay only with ourselves. It's not maybe intentional, but we just, we get comfortable. We know it's uncomfortable to make friends with people that aren't religious. And you say, well, Mark, at the beginning you said you shouldn't follow people with a bad character. I didn't say following them. I said influencing them. And befriending them so that they can follow you as you follow Jesus. You know, I would say probably two out of three people say, I'm not very good at evangelism. Evangelism means going out and spreading the gospel. Telling someone that doesn't know about God about your faith. Two out of three people say, I'm not very good at it. Well, the one out of three is not very good either. The other part. It's just what you practice. And pushing through uncomfortability. And being willing to follow Jesus and say, hey, I'm not very good at this, but I'm just going to try to be friends with everybody that's around me. I'm just going to talk to whoever God puts in my path. You know, I try to make it a habit to talk to people, whoever God puts in my path. And just like you, my moods do this. Sometimes I'm in a really good mood. Sometimes I'm really ticked off. Sometimes I'm in between. Sometimes I don't feel anything. Guys, can you relate? That's a large portion of the time. How are you feeling? Not much. I think that's pretty good. You know, I mean, just, but if I just depended on how am I feeling today in order to notice who's in front of me and befriend them, then one out of five moods, I would talk to people about my faith. The other four, I wouldn't. I'm not into it. And so I just try to make it a habit. Hey, wherever I'm at, just gas station, the mailbox, the post office, CVS, here. And I don't do it perfectly, but just talk to, hey, excuse me. He will, what's the secret? Excuse me, hey, I'd like to just invite you to my church. I go to a great church. That's the secret right there, secret sauce. But really, it's just being friendly, just befriending those around you and being comfortable reaching out, showing love, and calling people to follow who aren't religious. God doesn't want us to be just a community unto ourselves that are waiting for the mothership to come and take us to heaven. That's not God's heart. God wants us, even, even the... Uh, you know, the monastic movement was people felt like the world is so polluted, let's move to the hills. Stay away from society and keep ourselves pure. Now, the motive is probably really good. Let's get out of the garbage. Let's keep ourselves pure, but move to the hills and just stay away from the... That wasn't who Jesus was. Jesus went up into the hills to do what? To pray. And then what did he do after he got filled up with God? He came down the hill and mixed up with people, and called them to follow. And that's what God wants us to do. You look at the Pharisees. They couldn't understand what was going on. These were some really good people. In fact, they got figured out that if we followed enough laws, according to our law, we could be legalistically righteous. According to the Jewish law, we could become faultless. And they couldn't understand why would Jesus touch, mingle with, tax collectors and sinners. 
and it really, really upset them. In fact, they didn't even talk to Jesus directly. They saw the people coming in and out of Matthew's house, and some of them were the disciples. Maybe Jesus sent the disciples on some errands. And as the disciples were getting ready to walk back into the house, they said, hey, excuse me, can you ask your teacher, why would he, if he's a teacher like us, why would he be eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it gets back to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? On hearing this, verse 12, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't go to the doctor but once a year when I'm not feeling sick. I try to get a physical every year. You say, why? Well, not the smartest guy, but I've heard if you can catch things early, you have a better chance. Right? And there's things that you can be sick with and not feel sick. Right? There's things that they can figure out that's wrong with you that could be treated that's in your blood. Or that if you took a blood test, the blood test would show early enough on that you could maybe do something about it. We've all heard the horror stories of somebody that said, my back, I had a back pain, I went in, I had stage four cancer. I mean, and sometimes you can't avoid that. But the only time I go to the doctor when I'm not sick is for my physical. And I don't like all parts of the physical, if you know what I'm saying, especially at my age. In fact, the doctor said I was about ready to leave my physical, and he said, oh, we forgot one thing, and you know what that one thing was, right? And I said, oh, shoot, I forgot about that. He goes, I almost did too. I go, he goes, you think I'm excited about it? I said, no, me neither. But I'll tell you, I'd rather have that discomfort than another, pro- than another problem. But I don't go to the doctor when I'm sick. Yet when you drive by the doctor's offices all over Torrance or all over your neighborhood, they're always full. Who are all these people that are going? People that are sick. Their hip hurts, their back hurts, their head hurts. They have this disease or that disease. And yet the reality is every single one of us is sick. We all need God. If we're humble and we'll listen to the deep heart of who God put, what God put in us, that without God we feel an aching incompletion. One of the things that drew me to become a Christian was I was 19 years old, I was almost 20, and I was seeking religion, but I was seeking sin at the same time. You say, how, do you, how can you do that? How can you follow both? You can't. It doesn't work. But I was trying. Because I wanted God, but I wanted my freedom, so to speak. I wanted what God offered, but I wanted to, not anyone telling me what to do. I didn't want to follow anybody that I didn't want to follow. And so I tried to do both, and it was like, it was just unsatisfying. It would be like going and running a 10 miles, and then getting a 2-liter bottle of soda, and just... Yeah, for a second, it's refreshed you. It's washed something down. But all the chemicals and the sugar and the poison that's in soda, it's terrible, isn't it? Who eats, drinks that stuff anyway? Oh, sorry, guys. Um, it just, it, you don't feel good. You feel like, why did I just drink all the calories that I ran off plus some extras I put on? I mean, it just didn't work. And I remember being a young man, and I thought, man, is this life right here? Just like be selfish and do your thing and push for yours and get what you want and manipulate and just push your will. Is this, what it, is this it? Is this as good as it gets? 
And so there, I felt it aching. And, and I remember trying to clean up my act, stop parting and, you know, stop doing certain sins and getting really into school. And I thought, if I get all A's and B's and do really well in college, I'll make a ton of money, I'll be respected, and I'll be happy. Well, that didn't work. You go, which part? I got the good grades, but I still felt dissatisfied, empty. I remember one class, I had, it was an American literature course, really tough. I got one of the highest scores in the class. I was really proud of myself. Um, I don't know, 95, 99, something like that. And it was so pathetic, I hung out after the class, the last day of class, to ask people how they did. You know, they put this, the grades on the, on the wall on the outside, you know what I'm talking about? So I was standing there like looking like I was looking. Just that, how'd you do? They go, I think I got like an 81. How about you? 99. And I was waiting for the nothing. I mean, it just, that was it. And they walked off never to be seen again. I don't remember anybody's name. And I thought, I wanted a piece of the glory. Nothing. It was it. But I found that in everything, at work, at school, with girls, with anything you achieve, with anything you gain, any possession you get, you want it, you want it, you want it, you want it. A month later in your driveway, it does nothing for you. They even came out with something in the 90s during the dot-com boom where a lot of people became very wealthy overnight called the sudden wealth syndrome. That people that had no money that suddenly became multimillionaires or billionaires were like incredibly depressed. You say, what? I thought it would solve all their problems. Still sick. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all need Jesus. We all need his, what he brings in our health. And that we all need the doctor. The Pharisees didn't think they need the doctor. And just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you don't still need the doctor. It just means you're treated, you, treat, you treat your illnesses differently. You know who to go to. I know this has been a tough couple years for me, and I can't tell you one of the best things that's come out of it is I find myself often saying, I wish I wasn't here right now. I don't mean here. I mean just in this situation that I'm in or talking to that whatever because I'm feeling a lot. I wish I was in the canyon praying right now. That's a good thing to feel. I really would rather right now be praying to God versus I'm a, I'd rather go look at online porn or I'd rather go get drunk right now or I'd rather just avoid people right now or I'd just rather stew in my bitter, whatever it is. That's a good thing to go, man, I'm not feeling well. I want to go pray. I want to go be with God. And it's so important to know that if we're going to really follow, we've got to realize how much we need. The Pharisees couldn't understand that. And so Jesus told them, men who were always learning, they believed if I could learn more and more and more, I'll just please God more and more. He says, go tell them, go read the book of Hosea, and go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You and I both know what it's like to be around someone that just sticks to the rules. Sticks to the rules. Versus around being, versus being around somebody that's a merciful person. I don't mean they're tolerant of in the wrong way. I just mean they're compassionate, they're big-hearted, they're good-hearted. Such a difference. And Jesus says, go tell them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees could not understand that. That Jesus was about love, kindness, compassion, and relationship. He knew that there was something off with us. He just wanted us to get in touch with it and desire mercy from him. Let me just close here with some practicals and a couple stories. One, if you're going to be a candidate to follow Jesus, there has to be a willingness in you to come. 
Jesus told Matthew, Matthew, come on. And Matthew got up and left. If you want to stay a candidate who's a follower of Jesus, or a, a follower of Jesus, you've got to keep fighting for childlike humility. Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. The older you get, naturally, the more prideful you get, if you're not careful. You see young people that are all puffed out with their chest that haven't been beaten up yet, and you go, oh, they just wait. Well, we can get older and do the same thing. I paid my dues. Call me Mr. Pelizzeri. Not. Do you know what? We, we can kind of, we can get the same. If we're not careful. If we're not intentional, we can become like the Pharisees and not have that humility to, and the receptiveness to come. Number two, we've got to continue to realize that we're a sinner who realizes they're sick. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to realize you're sick to come to him. And if you already are a Christian, you've got to be careful to not feel self-sufficient and self-righteous where I got it, I got it, it's all figured out. And finally, we've got to follow even though we don't know what's next. Boy, isn't that challenging? I like the statement, walk by faith, not by sight. Especially if I'm walking by sight, I love that verse. But when you're called to walk by faith and not by sight and you only get one step of sight, it is so hard to trust God. You know, the Australian, the Australians have on their coat of arms, which is like they're on their flag, a picture of two creatures. The emu, which is a bird that doesn't fly, and the kangaroo. And these animals were chosen because they share a characteristic that appealed to the Australian citizens. The emu and the kangaroo can only move forward. They can't go backwards. The way the emu's feet is, they've got a three-toed foot, and if they try to reverse, they fall down. And the kangaroo has this huge thick tail. If they try to go in reverse, they'll trip on it and they'll fall down. And so the Australians thought as a picture of progress, what a great animals for our state flag, the emu and the kangaroo. So if you're on Trivial Pursuit, you just won. But I think his disciples, Jesus says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit to serve in the kingdom of God. We've got to be careful that we don't just stop or start looking back or we will fall down and trip over our situation. We're going to take communion here in a second. And I just want to share this story with you as we think about going to the cross and we think about following Jesus and even why we take communion every week. Back in uh, 1914, uh, Thomas Edison was about 67 years old. He was at the peak of his career. He invented over a thousand things. And he had worked 10 years on the dry storage battery. And he had this huge lab. He had, had, it, had it insured to $238,000 because it was made out of wood, or it was made out of concrete and, me and metal, and no one thought it could burn down. And he had this huge lab, and a fire started in his film department. And within a very short time, the whole, his whole lab went on fire. And his son, Charles Edison, who was about 24 years old at the time, went running around looking, where's his dad? Looking and looking. And he saw the fire blowing in the wind, and his dad's life work at 67 years old going up in flames. And Thomas is first concerned about his dad's safety, and second, his dad's life work. And he runs all over, and he finds his dad, and Thomas Edison's just standing there with his, the little hair that he had left blowing in the wind and the fire glowing off his face. And he sat there and he told himself how sad this is. 
Here's my father, almost 70 years old, and his life is going up in flames. And Charles, Thomas says to Charles, Charles, go get your mother. What, what? She's got to see this fire. She'll never see a fire this big ever in her life. <laughs> so he goes and gets his mom. She walks over, and he's feeling so sad as he's trying to put himself in his dad's shoes. And listen to what Edison says. The next morning, he's standing over the ruins, and he says to, to his son Charles, there is a great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Three weeks after the fire, he put forth the phonograph. And I think when we take the cross and we come to the cross and we think about following Jesus with our lives, think about those three things he said. There is a great value in disaster. The cross, to someone that doesn't understand it, not just once, but our whole lives. That's why we take communion, to remind ourselves of sacrifice. The sacrifice Jesus made and the sacrifice we're called to make. That there's a great value in this disaster of self-sacrifice, giving it up, putting our life down. That in the cross, all our mistakes are burned up. And it's at the cross as we take the bread and the juice and we think about following Jesus, we get to start anew again and again and again. Revelation 21.5, in the throne of heaven, he says, I am making everything new. These words are trustworthy and true. Write them down. And so as we go at the cross right now into the Garden of Gethsemane, and we reflect on our week, we reflect on our life, and we examine ourselves, are we following Jesus? Are we proclaiming his death until he comes? Let's also project the vision of going from the Garden of Gethsemane to the great throne room of God and him saying to us someday, I'm making everything new. These words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to say the word follow. It's so hard to follow. And uh, thank you so very much for as deep as Jesus is, his message is so simple to grasp that we're called to follow. And Father, as we take the bread and the juice representing his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, Father, we can feel sorry about that. We can feel sorry for our sins. But when we're feeling our body broken and we're feeling challenged, it's so easy to want to just recoil from the cross. Help us take our cross every day. Help us follow and help those that are thinking about their lives and their faith not just be emotional where they feel something and then don't do anything, but to let that motivation from you propel them to follow. Help us all follow you, God, the way Jesus set forth before us. And thank you so much for the cross. It's his name we pray. Amen.